And for tonight, tonight's script, script reading, Acts 15, 19 through 29. Okay. And it says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentiles, believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives <clears throat> for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth that what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Perfect. All right. Good afternoon. Good, e good evening. I want to say good morning because some people are going to watch this on Sunday morning. But I'm glad you're here. Um, so this is our passage today. Again, while I rearrange the furniture a little bit. So I can explore the space. So I can move around. Um, glad you're all here. Um, there's like three or four different conversations that we're going to have in this passage. Um, and one of them is about conflict. I would imagine at least once in 2020, you've experienced conflict. <laughs> it's been like, oh, it's been a ski slope of conflict. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about presence, like physical presence in a space, which is something that we've been deprived of this year. Um, and we're going to talk about sort of like a myopic view of, of the world and interpretation of Scripture. We're going to talk about uh, how different churches interpreted Scriptures differently. And I think all of that is important. It all comes together for one big thing in Acts chapter 15. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into, into this. Yes, I want to remind you, just like she said, if you weren't paying attention or for those those ne'er-do-wells who skip uh, announcements. Um, yeah, we're not, we're not making a church service next week. We were trying to figure it out, and we were all like, well, Thursday is Thanksgiving. We could try to do it like Friday, bring everybody back, or like Tuesday, and then we're like, wait a minute. It's 2020. Nobody cares. Let's just not do anything. And they're like, yeah, that sounds good. But your homework is still due. No ex extensions on that. So um, keep reading Acts 15 over and over. That's your homework. Uh, let's pray. Father, Thank you for, uh, for the few people to, that, that, we have, uh, that, that we have here in this room, in this space, um, gathered here um, as a representative of our larger body. I want to thank you for each and every one of them. Um, I pray that this would be a blessing to them. I pray that this would mean something, that, that they would connect um, with each other, with you, um, with the church uh, in this way, that it would uh, um, do something to carry them through. I pray that um, as I speak, that I'd be able to speak clearly, that I remember the things that I've studied, and, and uh, just be very present in all of this. I pray that we would all be present, that we would all sort of 
um, ponder these things, kick them around in our head, um, weigh the weight of them, and figure out how much they apply to us and our situations in which we are living and, and navigating. And I pray that in all of this, um, that you'd be the center of it and that you'd be made great, um, that you'd be made king again in our lives, in our hearts, in our community. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. All right, so more than anything, Acts 15 is, uh, is a chapter about conflict and conflict resolution. Um, this is, is what they have been doing. As, as you saw last week, there's generally... What happened is there's these Jewish Christians, and for the first time, there's these Gentile Christians, and there has never been Gentiles representing God's people, and they need to come together, and they're not sure how, because there's a lot of conflict. They think completely different. They have different worldviews. They have different religious practices, um, pagan rituals, uh, and, and they're, they're trying to figure out how to come together. Um, and like we, talk, like we talked about last week, the the Jewish Christians are making demands of the Gentiles to become more like them so that they can assimilate into the culture. Um, now, I have worked at this church since 2003. I was 23 years old. I turned 40 last month. Um, so I've been here a while, and I've been the pastor since 2007. And I can say from history that, uh, that conflict is inevitable. It's constant. It will always be present. It's a guarantee. Several times a year in our church, there, there has been conflict. Um, every single year for the last 17 years. There's things that communities go through. There's things that, uh, you're, you're in relationship with human beings, with their own brains that are not like yours and you can't control them. And so you have to figure out how to navigate all of this conflict. Conflict typically comes though from, from outside the church and it's usually brought in from outside. Um, we have loyalties that are in competition with Jesus. We have um, political rhetoric, social issues, economic and national ideologies that co-opt the Bible and use it to defend their existence and their belief systems as a power move. And those things get brought into the church and inevitably every time causes conflict because we are a separate people. We are a surrogate nation in the midst of a, of a thriving nation, that way we can see a, a falling but thriving nation at the moment. And as we look around, people start interpreting things in light of, they, they start taking these American religion um, of, of power and sex and politics and money, uh, and they apply biblical, like, biblical passages to them and drag that into the church as if God had something to do with them um, or is working through them in some way. And I've always said it's, it's, it's really hard to do discipleship in America because everyone has already been so discipled in the ways of the empire. And so you almost have to de-disciple everyone first before you can disciple them. Because these competing allegiances are always at play. Um, and so worldly discipleship is, is very, very effective. They immerse you with marketing and advertising and culture and all of the ways uh, that they, they indoctrinate you into thinking like they do, that the things that, that they are striving for, the story they're telling is the story that, that obviously Christianity should be telling too. Um, but it's not. And so it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's also very myopic. Uh, it causes you, as an American Christian, to read the text with America at the center of it. In the same way we make our world maps with America at the center of it, we read the Bible with America at the center, and we don't even realize we're doing it. Um, <clears throat> there was a, uh, a post this week I wanted to show you by Bishop Esau Macaulay. He's a, 
Um, he writes commentaries with, with NTR. He wrote a great commentary on Ephesians. No, Philip? Yeah, Ephesians last year. Um, and he writes this this week. He said, your theological perspective might be myopic if unrest in America leads you to talk about the end times, but suffering, disease, and famine in parts of Africa does not. He's exactly right, because we look around and we see unrest and economic downturn, and we start scouring the Bible, looking for the message about America in the Bible. This is all God wrote about, like God told his people about this, and John wrote about this in the book of Revelation, and we assume, of course, that the Bible's about us, about our country, about our people, because we're myopic. Even though for the last 30 years, 50 years, 80 years, um, Africa has been ravaged by war and poverty and all the things that actually writes about in the scriptures in the book of Revelation. And yet, it doesn't affect us, people in power over the world. And until it affects us, it has nothing to do with God's work in the world. And we assume that America is what God is doing in the world. Um, and so now I want to bring this back to Acts 15, because they were, they were very much in the same boat. They had been discipled by the nationalistic propaganda of their own people, of the Judean leaders, that um, God wanted to build a nation with walls and armies and wealth and palaces and swords, and it was going to rule the world and overthrow violent regimes using violence, using the very thing that has always oppressed them. And that's how God would do his work, through their might and strength, their own greatness, not only that, it had become myopic. It centered on only them. And then when God tries to bring in Gentiles, they, they can't accept that. And it's difficult to wrap their minds around the, 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 the idea that God would interact with some other people, that what God would be doing in the world would not actually center on them. Um, and so they were divided, just like the American church. They were divided. And so we can read through the book of Acts and we get to chapter 15, we read through it, and we can see how they set out to solve this conflict in their church. Um, and I just let's work our way through some of this, how they figured out how to resolve the conflict um, in this passage. First off, there's, James gets up and he speaks, and he offers a few different recommendations. Um, I'm going to name three sort of key recommendations and practices that the early church had that you see on display here. Um, the first one is that they, um, they acknowledged what they called their common experience of the Holy Spirit. We talked about this last week. We read verse 8, and here it is again. It says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. So what he's saying is, we saw evidence of the Holy Spirit, and because we saw this, we knew God had called them in. And if the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and it's come upon us, the same Spirit, then we are brothers and sisters, and we cannot be torn apart, no matter what. And so whatever it is they're bringing into it, we have to find a way to accommodate it. Whoever they are, whatever they are wrapped up in, whatever discipleship they may have undergone by their side of the empire, they are entering in, and we must accommodate and love and bless and love them towards a goal. Um, so that's the first step, is understanding that God is calling them in, giving the Spirit to them. And second, um, they engage in reasonable arguments, reasoned arguments and debates. So that there is some back and forth. They talk. You can read between the lines and see that there was a lot of discussion. Luke doesn't tell us how long this Jerusalem council was when they're trying to figure this out. But you can tell that it was long. You can tell they had a lot of conversation. And it gets to a point where after they have all this conversation uh, and they make all their arguments, James says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us 
not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And then he lays out a few things that he would like for them to abstain from if they're going to enter into the church. But I want to point out, they're making this up as they go. They have to figure this out. There's no set prescription by which they will, will sort of, from the top down, decide, here's who can come in and who, can, who can't come in. All those who are living this way cannot. All those who are not living that way can. None of that is happening. They know they are bound to them, so they have to make a way for them to enter in. And this is foreign to most churches today. We have to find a way to stay in community with them. And, and this will be asked again when we get to the book of Romans, which I'm waiting to do until we come back together fully, because that's not a book you can do sort of half in person and half online. Um, but the, the question in the book of Romans that you really can come to that, that Paul is asking the Jewish people and the Gentiles is, what are you willing to give up to stay in relationship with them? What privileges, what powers, what wealth, what honor are you willing to sacrifice and lay on the altar in order to stay in community with these people? Um, it's, a, it's a constant thing. And the constant question that the apostles, especially Paul, are asking is, um, if God has bound you to them, how are you going to be the presence of Christ to them? How, how are we going to do this? Uh, and so the, the third one, oh, hold up, hold a second. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to point out what uh, Eugene Peterson, his translation in the message says. He says this, he says, so why are you now trying to out-God God, loading these new believers down with rules? He's saying, uh, I, I just love how he like, lays this out, trying to out-God God. God put his spirit on them. He, God didn't make any recommendations, any qualifications, any way for them to come in. He just put his spirit upon them and bound them to you. And now you are taking the place of God and making extra requirements? No, that's not going to happen. So let's go to the third one. Uh, finally, James offers them an interpretation of Scripture that fits their story and their need. I can't read the whole passage. It's from 14 to 29. Um, so basically, he tells this story to them. He, he has to come up with a theology because now an interpretation of the text that sort of helps them understand their place together in the same church because the church had always been a, a Jewish church. And all they had to do was retell the story of the Old Testament and then bring them up to speed on, and then Jesus. But these Gentiles had never been in the church. And so it can't continue like it, like it was. They had to have a new way of telling the story, a new interpretation of the story of God, of the text of what God is doing in the world. And so he draws uh, from the prophets in, in, in this passage, uh, 14 through 29, he draws on the prophet Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and he reads some of Moses' instructions to the, uh, in, in the Levitical law that Moses lays out. Um, and he gives them this whole new interpretation of understanding the story of God that now helps them in, include these Gentiles. And that's fascinating that he does this, but I also want you to know that that's okay. It's all right. Um, the church community had an interpretation, a way of, of, of reading together that is both honest and consistent. It's centered upon the story of Jesus, but it told the story of God in a way that included all of them. And the way James tells the story had never been told in the Bible before, ever. It's like he had been pondering and thinking about this. I imagine him during this council staying up night after night after night, like working out his theology of how God is including Gentiles. Because it's hard to wrap your mind around. It doesn't make any sense. And so they may not always be from the same, con uh, the, the interpretations that these churches have in the New Testament, 
as you read through the text, you're going to see they're not the same from church to church to church, from congregation to congregation. There is a whole range of interpretations of the Bible in the Bible. Um, it's, it's important to understand that each communal, each communal structure in the New Testament is, is different and it changes based upon how the stories play out in each context. I, I want you to notice here, let me put the whole text up here uh, in verse 19 through 21. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, <clears throat> we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So, he picks out, he singles out some specific things, and you hear this, and all you have to do is think about it like, okay, is this a universal law? If this is what James told this church to do, why didn't any of the other churches do this? Paul himself ate meat, sacrificed to idols in another city, and offended some people. So what happens here is this church, in order to, to act in Christoformity and bring their people together in a way that is one body who all have the same spirit, they just laid out some guidelines that they would all agree upon. Here's the best way. Here's some things that you need to give up so that you can remain in community with these uh, Jewish Christians. Because they, it, their conviction based upon the, what the spirit of God has told them, they can't do these things. And so the question was, are you willing to give up some of these things in order to stay in community with these people? And they were. But I want you to notice Watermark obviously doesn't enforce any of these ideas. We obviously don't care if you eat the meat of a strangled animal and drink the blood, <laughs> if you whatever. If that's what you're into, that's your barbecue, go for it. But like, obviously, we don't apply these rules to Watermark Church, nor does any other church in America. Um, but oftentimes, we will, we will take the discerned convictions of various churches throughout the New Testament and we'll speak as if these are universal rules for the whole church everywhere in all times. We do this with... with um, my, my favorite topic to harp on, which is, which is women in the church. Like, we do this, we, we take Paul's letter to Timothy in Ephesus, and where Paul tells him, hey, um, in your church, don't allow these women to be in charge. And you can get all huffy-puffy about that until you realize that these women were coming from the cult of Artemis, and all of this stuff came along with that. And what they needed to do was sort of be undiscipled by the, the local pagan ideas, be undiscipled by the empire, and learn in submission to the church, and be rediscipled. But we know that this is how it was in Ephesus, but that's not how it was in other churches. In fact, Paul sent Phoebe with the letter of Romans to the Roman church to preach it to them, to answer the theological questions they had, to be in spiritual authority over them. And so what we see is each church is interpreting the text different based upon their context and what God is doing in that city and what they can discern together their place is and what they are supposed to do to represent Christ well in that place. And it's okay. A church can discern their own culture prayerfully, being submissive to the Spirit, being bathed in the spiritual disciplines, fasting and prayer and sacrifice, silence and solitude, and through honest interpretation of the text in a way that illuminates Christ and not our own cultural preferences. We are perfectly allowed to have a way of telling the story that emphasizes who we are and what we believe God is calling us to do. And we do have one.
and our story is not like the church down the road and theirs is not like the church down the road and theirs is not like the church down the road and it's okay. To an extent, as long as people are being submissive and prayerful and humble and honest about what God is doing in their midst, there is freedom in the church. Um, Conflict arises when someone walks in and decides that everyone is wrong and that they must get it right. Conflict arises almost always when someone is so concerned with getting it right that they forget what it means to be a church. So there's a couple, a couple steps I want to walk through here, like, like I just said. Conflict arises from a desire to get it right. Now, we want to get it right. Oftentimes, the first step to getting it right is sort of otherizing. It's, it's sort of lording over, and it, and it all you have to do really to see this, to see what it looks like when people are trying to get it right, is, is, is look at any random social media that, that you have access to. And what you see is you see a lot of people who very well might be right. They very well might actually have all the facts and all the answers and be right. But the fact is, they're being unchristlike which puts them in the wrong. Um, we get so concerned with getting it right, and that's the whole problem, because peace doesn't come from getting it right. Peace comes from a desire to be Christ-like. Roman peace was all about changing other people to become more Roman. Roman peace was always Pax Romana. It was the, the path of Rome. It was, it was you... The, the way you got peace in Rome was, was you, you conquered all these people, you made them Roman, they had to worship your gods, they had to assimilate to your culture, they became citizens, and if not, you wiped them out. So what you were left with was a bunch of people that sort of conformed and assimilated into the Roman people. It's called Pax Romana. It's how you achieve peace in Rome. Conquer your enemies and change them. Peace in the church, Pax Christi, is not about that. It is about dying to yourself. It is held together by grace. This is how it works. Christ-likeness requires that we draw near to people, physical presence with them every time. It requires that we draw near to people because this is what Christ did. This faraway being um, who, who, who never was like always sort of slightly misunderstood by God's people approaching and coming in the form of a man and a human being present with us. And the most important thing that the church needs to understand, that individual Christians as well as the collective communal group needs to understand is that the most important thing, again, is, is not being right. It's being Christ-like. I know a lot of people who, who are very right but are very unchristlike. Um, and they, they ridicule people and they put people down. And I, I see it in our own interactions sometimes with people in our church online where someone will say something and someone will rebuttal them and there's this pylon of laughing and ridicule and it hurts my heart because yes, they're wrong, but they're not receiving the presence of Christ at all. And that person will never change because of the way they never saw the presence of Christ. 
because the goodness of Christ is what draws people in. And it's also the presence of Christ. I don't know, I don't know if you've noticed, if you've felt this um, during this time, but it, it has been eye-opening. I, I've seen what a lack of, of physical presence does to a community, what a lack of being in the same space does to a community. And it's hard. It's the way it is right now. It's hard. But if anything, I've been trying to pay attention and learn how the church works. Like, what's the secret sauce of, of the gathering of God's people? Like, what is it? It's presence, and it's communion. It's the communion table. Um, we've always been a place of, of diversity of economic and social thought. Watermark has always been that since the very beginning. But we've always remained a community. We've always been able to remain close and brothers and sisters despite disagreements because of two things, physical presence and communion. These two things have always held us together. But I think for the last eight months, I mean, there's obviously been no physical presence and there's been no shared communion table. And we've seen how a lack of sharing the same physical space causes differences to become division and separation. And I, and I see it now and I get it now, how it works. Because when you are in the space with somebody, in a shared space, there's thousands of subtle, unconscious ways that you are communicating. Um, there's things that, that communicate, like when you're, when you're talking to somebody, you're having a conversation, even if it's in disagreement, you can, your, your body is, is naturally, subconsciously communicating things like, I, I hope you're okay with me saying this, right? Like, and we will subconsciously say things like, like, please be gracious with my thoughts, I disagree with you. And like, it's the way that we present ourselves <clears throat> that invites the other person to receive in ways that if you weren't physically present, that they, they wouldn't. And people can tell when you're talking from, even if they disagree with you, they can tell if you're speaking from a place where, where that issue that you're discussing is deeply personal because maybe you've experienced pain. People can pick up on that in, in a normal face-to-face -face conversation. You can tell when someone is talking about something that they've suffered through. When you are in someone else's presence, you take up physical space, you breathe the same breath, which is what got us here. Um, you, everything is affected by, by your life and your energy that is flowing through you. And in that space, it's easier to say, I, I disagreed with, with, with some of your thoughts that were communicated, but, but, but I can see the image of God in you. I can see the Spirit of God present with you. And... and, and I'm, emotionally, there is, there is love between us. And so it's okay. But if you remove that physical presence, let's talk about that. Let's talk about communication just for a second. I want to walk through this. I want to sort of build backwards from here. When you have physical presence, there is message, there is nuance, there is empathy, voice inflection, body language. I always say that in my mind. That's always Ursula. Body language. Um, subconscious <laughs> signals. Like There's all these things that are happening. But every step you get removed from there, you lose some of it. If you, if you remove the physical presence and you just go, okay, we'll just do online video, online church, right? That'll be fun. Well, you might have the message and the voice inflections and the body language, but that's it. You lose a lot of other things. Um, and then you get farther away from that and you get into sort of, well, let's get rid of the video. I can just listen to the podcast and, and I'll just listen and that's enough. But then you, all you have is the message and voice inflection and that's all. You have two things to help you communicate. And on top of that, there's nothing keeping your attention. Like when I'm talking to you, we all know, like if you're talking to somebody in real life, we all know like it's rude to like 
keep going. Like, we don't do that. But it's, if they're not standing in front of you, that, that so, so sociological requirement is not there. Do whatever you want. I'm all alone listening to podcasts. Like, and if you move back from that, when you just like get online and you talk to people on social media, all you have is text and then all you have is message. And when all you have is like the words and when all you have is like the, the message, you don't even get the full message because you end up injecting your own subconscious into what they're saying. You imagine them sometimes, like if they disagree with you, suddenly they're like hunched over a computer with long fingernails and they're like making angry eyes and they're typing and they're laughing and they're evil because you have to continue believing they're evil and so you inject like sort of this idea onto them, onto the text when they could have just been like swinging on a swing typing. You know what I mean? Like it could have been wonderful and they could have been happy and saying it one way and I've seen this over and over and over. And so every step you get away from the physical presence is like, it's so much harder to keep from entering into division and conflict. You have to know that. That has to help guide some of your interactions, I mean, in some way. It's not going to come across right. <laughs> it's not going to. Um, a lot of people are very committed to misunderstanding you. You have to understand that as well. There's a lot of people very committed to misunderstanding me. And I know that. But if I can get into physical space with them, they have no choice but to like listen and connect. <clears throat> and what we end up doing is, in the conflict in the church, like it, it's been there from the start, even right here in the book of Acts. So what we do is, oftentimes we end up into conflict and, and then we, we decide the only thing I can do is I can separate. And so imagine like you have this big, no drawing for this because this is all coming from over here. We'll see how it goes. Imagine you have like this big circle and there's all these like, let's just imagine Tommy stick figure drawings all over this circle. And like suddenly you decide to like, no, half of these people, I, 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 I'm not in, into what they're into anymore. And so we're going to draw another line through the middle of that. And we're going to make the circle smaller. That's called schism. You separate from people. You're like, I'm going to cut these people out. I'm going to schism. I'm going to bring it down a little bit. And then what you're going to find is that there's more of those people that you can't agree with fully either, and it has to get smaller. You have um, Bible scholars like Dean Pinter. He, in his commentary on this passage, he writes, schism and division only mean that our circles get drawn tighter and our call for unity of the Spirit rings hollow because these circles get smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually you end up imprisoned by it because you end up with a small group of people that you're like, okay, these are my people. And, and we all agree. And I've, I've cut out everybody I disagree with that it's difficult to be around. And now I just have me and my people. But the problem is now, you can't keep learning and growing. Because if you change your mind, you're going to be out of your little circle. There has to be some other way. There has to. There's got to be some other model by which you decide how to have community with people you disagree with. Purity has never come by schism, ever. Nor has purity ever come by our efforts to get it right and make other people like us and to argue people into our position. That can never cause purity of thought with a group of people. For whatever reason, the grace that God has, has, has showered upon us to draw us in as enemies of God, which the Bible says that we were, and it's, it's right, we weren't on the side of God at some point in our lives. And we have been drawn in by grace. 
But for some reason, we have decided that that grace that drew us in ends with us, and it doesn't go any farther, and I have no grace for these other people. Maybe you think it's a useless tool. Maybe you think the grace that drew you into a cosmic God is incapable of drawing this other person to you. But the message of the Bible is, is that it is. It's the grace of God is a unifying factor in the world. And it should be our first go-to tool. It can change the human heart. When you read people like Richard Rohr, he says, in the big picture, what matters? When you are on your deathbed, what, ma- what will matter? Will you be thinking about what you are thinking about right now? Will you be arguing about what you are arguing about now? To pull back from the tug of emotion and ego that wants to be right, wants to win, wants to put the other down, wants to humiliate the enemy. This is the very heart of spiritual warfare. This is where we need to put our energy first. Instead of obsessing about theoretical or real moral issues that usually ask little of us personally. There is a spiritual discipline that the church has handed down over the centuries um, that they've given to us specifically to help us handle conflict. It's called silence. And there's a way that it works. Um, The discipline uh, of silence, it can involve the absence of speech, but that's not all it is. It always involves the act of listening. Silence is not about you shutting your mouth and saying nothing. It's about your growth. It's about your learning. It's about your patience. It's about you fully understanding a situation. Um, Simply refraining from talking is not the spiritual discipline of silence. It's much more than that. Silence involves the ability to shut your mouth when you have been slandered. Trusting that God is in control of all of it. Like, when someone is shredding your reputation out there in the world as a dog shreds a blanket and you're just watching and you're silent and you don't interject and you trust that if I have lived a life that is Christ-like, if I have been growing in, in Christoformity, then God is in control and God will do what God is going to do and the people that know me will know that that is not true. And the people that don't are again heavily invested in misunderstanding me. And so the act of silence is is choosing I don't need to defend myself because what I live by is not my reputation. And it may cost me some money but what I live by is not money. And it may cost me a career but what I live by is not my career. And so, I'm going to do the Christ-like thing. And sometimes it is to talk. But remember, when Jesus was standing before Pilate, being berated with questions, being slandered and accused, false accusations everywhere, and he just stood there. And when he finally talks, it's on the cross over all these people, and he's saying, Father, forgive them. They They don't know what they're doing. That has been like in the back of my mind, like, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Has been, has been, <laughs> it's become like a mantra all day. 
Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They just don't know what they're doing. And there's a, there's a grace in that. It's choosing not to see them as nefarious and evil and purposeful. It's choosing to see them as lost and confused like sheep in need of a shepherd, as the Bible describes Israel. And so, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Richard Rohr is right. Conflict in the church is spiritual warfare. That's what it is. Um, spiritual warfare, it, 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 you, you cannot win spirit, in spiritual warfare as yourself. You can't do it. As our little selves, we can't win like that. Like, we have too much concern for our reputation, external pressures, commitments to our empire, the ways that we've been discipled in the ways of America, our, our defense mechanisms and our triggers. We can't win spiritual warfare as us. We can only win as, as the presence of Christ. And so we have to consciously choose to put ourselves aside and be the presence, the faithful presence of Christ in the room. And this is what Paul talks about. Paul says, it is not I who lives right now, but, but Christ who lives in me. That, that right now is actually, I wrote it, that's, that's my edition because that's my prayer <laughs> constantly. It's not me when my kids are being created. It's not me who lives right now, but, but Christ who lives in me. Um, and it's become a prayer as well. Those two things have become like my prayers for this season. They don't know what they're doing. It's not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Because if Tommy were here right now, he'd have some words to say. And I, and I can't be Tommy. I have to be Christ. Um, when you are facing conflict, this is where you have to be able to go. And so I, hopefully this is some help to some of you. This has been a season of, of learning I've learned about communication. I've learned about what is not communication. I've learned about conflict. And I've learned about graciousness with people. I've learned about misunderstanding people and injecting my own motives onto people. But most of all, I've learned about grace. I've learned to ask the question, okay, what am I willing to put aside to stay in community with this person, with that person, with this type of person? What am I willing to give up? And if you're not willing to give up anything, you can't claim that you're trying to be Christ-like. Christ, who gave up everything and didn't even, literally could have chosen to be born in any manner of life in the world, palace, whatever. But he chose the bottom, gave up everything. And so whatever you're going through, I, I want to pray grace upon you. I want you to somehow find peace. There's a reason Paul always says grace and peace because peace comes about through grace. Not through power, not through rightness, not through argument. And so I hope with that somehow I can uh, help pastorally speak into some of your situations that you're in. Let's close in prayer and then uh, we'll do a collect prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for everyone here. I pray that you would continue to guide us through this time of, of intense learning. It has been a, a, a fire hose of information from the divine, God, in this time. I pray that for everything that we learn, we would adequately learn to repent for every single thing, every single way that we need to change. Let us do it. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Help us to continue to love each other through all of this. In your name.
Amen. So if you guys would stand with me, I would like to do uh, the collect prayer with you. We do this now in place of communion because obviously we can't all be drinking from the same stuff. So if you will uh, pray this with me nice and loud. Let's go. Father God, who is triune and still one, let us learn from your unity during our division. May we come together for goodness and do as you have called us to do, to act justly, love mercifully, and walk humbly with you through creation. Thank you all. Love you all. Grace and peace. Thanks for coming.